1690, the first multi-page newspaper in the English colonies was printed in Boston. It had the alluring name Public Occurrences Both Foreign and Domestic. The paper was published by British immigrant Benjamin Harris. He had come to the colonies just a few years prior, which, of course, left him with a dilemma. How could he assure his new community that they could trust this foreigner to share the news of the day? Well, he he would just say so. He'd make it the central mission of his new journalistic enterprise. He wrote at the very top of his first issue that he would not publish anything other than, quote, what we have reason to believe is true, repairing to the best fountains of our information. Any mistakes, he said, would be corrected in the next issue. He even deliberately acknowledged the elephant in the room, writing, there are many false reports maliciously made and spread among us. These public occurrences would be the capital T truth. So there, in the first issue of his newspaper, the fine people of Boston would read about confrontations between Native Americans and local settlers, the colony's military activities against Canada, outbreaks of smallpox and epidemical fevers, a fire that destroyed a bunch of houses, a whole bunch of local goings-on. But he also reported a surprising and salacious fact about the King of France, King Louis XIV. You see, the king was in trouble with his son because he had been sleeping with his son's wife. Well, the local authorities were not too keen on bad-mouthing the French king. It wouldn't be great for British-French relations. Plus, Harris was just sort of printing a newspaper on his own, so they shut down the newspaper just four days after its first issue. But here's the thing. The king was not sleeping with his daughter-in-law. For one, he didn't have a daughter-in-law at the time. His only daughter-in-law died months ago, something Harris would have definitely known. Even still, his late daughter-in-law was like super devout and she was bedridden for years before her death. And there's also just like still no historical evidence that anything like this happened. Instead, seems like Harris just made it up. And he would have had reason to, because Harris was a committed Protestant, and he knew that Louis XIV was ramping up the persecution of Protestants to make the country Catholic. Back in London, Harris was facing legal trouble for printing a bunch of anti-Catholic pamphlets. It's why he fled to the colonies. So it all seems pretty calculated. The king already had a reputation for being a dude with a libido, so sleeping with his son's wife wouldn't seem all that unbelievable. And Harris would clearly be happy if his new Bostonian neighbors saw his religious enemy as a monster. Benjamin Harris, the apparent champion of truth and crusader against false reports, prints politically motivated misinformation. So, yeah, (laughs) that's how far back fake news goes in the United States to the first issue of its first newspaper. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell. This week, I'm excited to share my conversation with Sander Vanderlinden. He's a professor of social psychology at the University of Cambridge, and among the things he studies is the psychology of misinformation. Why do we believe false things, and what can we do about it? 
This has become a major area of research in psychology since social media has let falsehoods spread faster than ever before. And Sandra has a book coming out soon called Foolproof, Why Misinformation Infects Our Brains and How to Build Immunity. It comes out February 16th in the UK and March 21st in the United States. Uh, It it may be worth tying some connections in the Grand Opinion Science web. Um, First, I'll note that episode 13 of this show from July 2020 features Gordon Pennycook and his work on fake news and controlling misinformation. I would listen to both if I were you. And also, a key idea in Sanders' approach to preventing misinformation is this classic idea from the psychology of persuasion called inoculation theory. You'll hear plenty about it here, but savvy opinion science fans will also remember episode 49 from October 2021, which features Josh Compton and his take on the many varieties of psychological inoculation. So put those next in your listening queue, but for now, let's jump into my chat with Sander Vanderlinden and see what we can do about our pressing infodemic. I was thinking about it, though, like, when you must have been writing this, I mean, there's a lot of very up-to-date stuff in here. Like, when when did you pitch the book? Like, when did this whole years thing ago. actually start? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It was it was years ago. And um, I had the idea for years, and I just couldn't get around to, to writing a book. I don't know how you feel about this as an academic, but you're just so used to writing papers that the idea of writing a popular book. I mean, I got approached by a number of fairly academic publishers on the topic all the time. And, and I was thinking, well, I could do an edited book. But, um, you know, is that really what I want to do if I'm going to write a book? Um, you know, I'm already appealing to other scientists with my articles. Is it really going to make that much of a difference to, to, to really write a sort of an academic book on it? And then I thought, hmm, maybe I should do a, a more popular book. I've always wanted to write a book, um, even before I got into academia. And so that kind of resurfaced for me, the idea of reading a book, or writing a book. And then I just couldn't get around to actually doing it. Uh, so I had it in my head for two, three years, um, and I just couldn't get actually to, to sit and, and, and you know, write it down. Also, because it's such a uncertain endeavor in some ways. It's sort of like, well, you know, is this going to turn into a feasible project? Is anyone going to read it? Is this really, you know, turn into something? Um, and it takes a lot of your time. You really have to sit down and you know, and write every day for, for however long it takes. And so, um, yeah, I was putting it off. And then it really, it really started out for me when I, when I got an agent who helped me, um, shape this up into a proposal and then actually turn it into, um, into a book. Cause I, you know, I did do a lot of popular science writing. I had a blog for a while in scientific American mind and, you know, and other outlets and I enjoyed that process, but it's, you know, one of the things I've learned, it's so different from writing a thousand word essay f- for the public uh, versus a, a book where you have to think in advance about all the stories and all the chapters. And yeah. So to answer your question in a, in a shorter way, um, <laughs> I started writing this, um, you know, it must have been 2017, 2018 um, that I started on the book, just, you know, right after the, the 2016 craziness um and then you know uh, the the well i guess unfortunate thing about writing a book on this topic is that every time something new happened and i felt i just had to rewrite the whole thing um and so that you know at some point i had to draw a line under it and say well i've covered so much misinformation i think that you know 
I, I think I've covered all the major examples that one can think of: wars, pandemic, elections. Um, um, and so that's yeah, that's that's kind of where I just thought, well, I have to just finish it now, even though there's always going to be a, <laughs> a new a new a new strain of misinformation coming mm-hmm. up. At the time you started, though, had you really been doing much of the work on controlling it, right? Like the inoculation stuff? It seems like by 2017, that hadn't really been off the ground yet. Or maybe maybe it had been. Was that the early days of doing that work? No, that was the early days of doing that. In fact, it was much earlier. And again, this is something that I started. Uh, it was an idea I had during my graduate uh, degree, so a very long time ago. And I, I talked to some people you know, in my department who are interested, but I just, you know, it was kind of a vague idea. It was more about the, my research question at the time was, well, how do you inoculate somebody who's already been inoculated with misinformation? And at the time I sort of called that reverse inoculation, um, which um, I know you've had Josh Compton on the show, right? Uh, with whom I collaborate very much uh, um, later term that theory, therapeutic inoculation, which I think was a much better term than my initial reverse inoculation but um um it just yeah i just parked that idea and did something else for my phd and then once i finished the phd i came back to the idea of inoculation um and this was before the 2016 election we did, we took a lot it took us a long time to design that study so initially it was in the context of climate change uh, coming back to you know um the yield program uh, where i was at the time and um it took us at least a year to design it because we really wanted to do a, a two-phase study. We wanted to understand the, the common misperceptions that people had or the common forms of misinformation about climate that were out there and then how we could inoculate people against it. And it's kind of funny because at the time, it wasn't so obvious that exposing people to misinformation would have this huge negative effect um, because there wasn't a whole lot of research on it. I mean, there was a sort of old school research on, on propaganda and stuff, but it, you know, it wasn't so clear to us. I mean, now there's so much research on it, but at the time that was a big thing just to see what's the effect of exposing people to, to misinformation on climate change. And then, you know, if, if it has a negative effect, then could we inoculate people? It's kind of a multi-phased um, study. So we did that whole thing. Then we wrote it up. And, you know, as you know, I, I transitioned to postdoc somewhere else. And so, you know, I had new responsibilities, new papers. Um, we submitted this to, to um, uh, yeah, well, c- kind of a big journal. Um, it took a long time. Uh, it, was a, it was a nature journal. But, but they came back basically asking to change the paper in such a fundamental way that we felt it wasn't really our paper anymore. And so, um, yeah, it was it was tricky for me. I, I, I took a long time for me to get that paper out. And so we we spent more than a year and a half, almost two years in revision with this paper at different out trying to decide what we want to do with this work. And it, it was just a coincidence that when we finally published it, the 2016 election was ongoing and it just got picked up this idea of you can inoculate people against misinformation. And so it became was kind of the perfect storm of you know, the whole problem of misinformation and the term fake news was getting a lot of traction. And then we published a study about this idea of, well, you can inoculate people against it using a modern example like like climate change. And that's really when it got picked up and we decided to invest more in, in this in this line of research. Yeah. What, what is it that that journal wanted you to like? What was the paper they wanted you to have submitted? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, this is a this is kind of a debate in in my area. I'm not sure how you know. Perhaps you're familiar with it. I'm not sure if you know Dan Kahan, who works on cultural cognition theory. Um, and so, um, 
at the time, you know, this was a, a very influential idea. And we were working on, on measuring and figuring out how people perceive consensus in science on things like climate change and how you could inoculate people from attempts to politicize uh, science using this information. But Dan's idea was really that, that you know, people aren't so responsive to um, information. People are motivated, right? Um, and, uh, well, I, I think the idea of motivated cognition is not so controversial. I mean, everyone processes information that's congenial to their own political sort of sort of beliefs. But his hypothesis was a bit more extreme um, in the sense that, you know, the people who are the most educated, who are the most literate, the numerate, uh, will polarize the most when exposed to, to factual information. And we're kind of de debating back and forth on how reasonable that hypothesis is. But... At the time, I think it was a very influential idea that the sort of the, the whole stuff around cultural cognition was fairly new. And I think all of the reviewers were convinced that that should be the conclusion of the paper, that uh, people don't respond to evidence. And the fact that we were able to inoculate people and that, you know, even Republicans and conservatives in our sample responded positively to the inoculation about the scientific consensus. And they just said, well, in light of what we know about cultural cognition, this just wouldn't happen. <laughs> Um, and so we were like, isn't that a motivated sort of process? So in, in a way, they were proving Dan right, um, but but not in terms of a day. I mean, our data was just so clear that um, everyone was, you know, everyone were, were sort of updating their beliefs in, in the sample. Now, I don't think we changed the minds of people who were deeply skeptical of climate change, um, but I do think we were able to neutralize attempts to further sort of entrench them in 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 these ideas using you know the example we had in our study. So so that was the main problem. They wanted to reframe the whole paper around cultural cognition, and for us it was sort of like, well, that's you know it's an interesting idea, but it's not really core to the idea of inoculation or the purpose of this study. Uh, and so we struggled with um, you know being at a, at a prominent journal and having to reframe your whole paper. So we decided not to um, and just uh, go somewhere else. Yeah. I, to, to that paper. So I recently, in my persuasion class for undergrads, taught a day on misinformation, which I which was new for, for this semester. And I show the results of that uh of that paper, which oh, right. it's, it's not that often that a five or six condition study <laughs> makes that much sense, right? Like it's, right. it's that, that graph is beautiful. Cause you go condition a, B, C, D and E all look exactly like what you'd expect. Right. And it just, it makes sense. Like show the consensus information. People believe it more show the criticism. People believe it less show both nothing happens, but inoculate at two different levels and you protect against misinformation. So it's just a really nice, it's just so clean. <laughs> the the, the yeah, way I love, that it I looks to that tell that story. That. Because I was sitting in my, in my, I was a postdoc at Princeton at the time. I was sitting in my office by myself looking at the data and I was like, this, this has never happened to me. And I was like, you know, I'm running <laughs> experiments and they, they fail all the time. It looks like a mess. And I was like, you know, I was, I was, it's a hard time publishing stuff that's messy. And so I was looking at this data and I was like, this looks beautiful. And it was like, it, it's all stacking up and it, you know, it, it, it's it mostly, you know, wasn't perfect, but mostly it's a very sensible progression um, of how things should happen according to the conditions. And I was like, wow, this has really never happened to me. And I think this is, it's really cool. And then I thought, well, maybe it's, it's a fluke, but you know, it was a large representative sample. And then we ran some other studies that, um, you know, John Cook, who was a colleague who ran the same study, more or less, with a slightly different treatment independently. And we were kind of back and forth and he was finding the same results. And and so, you know, it gave me more confidence that 
you know, this was actually what was happening. Um, and I was very optimistic at the time that because it was such a, you know, sensible pattern that seemed very straightforward, that it was going to be an easy time publishing this in, 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 you know, <laughs> nature climate change it was at the time. But yeah, it's funny that you say that because it, that's, that's what it was to me. And I was so happy with the result and my, my co-authors were as well, but we did spend almost a year and a half thinking about these conditions, pre-testing, making sure that, you know, it made sense that we got it right, which is unusual for a study, I would say. I mean, I'd love to take a year and a half for every study that I run, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> most of the time it's a few weeks or sometimes even half a day or sometimes a few months, but it took us a long time to really think this study out. And then I thought, well, it does pay to really deeply think about experimental studies, have multiple people help, you know, design it, critique it. And then in the end, you do get something that's, you know, that's perhaps, you know, worth um, worth publishing. Um, so yeah, so that was great, but we were fortunate because it, it seemed so useful to the debate that was going on at the time around misinformation. And so luckily I think it's still, people still found it useful. Um, um, I think especially in, in the sort of more practical sphere where people were looking for, for solutions. And so I'm glad that, that, you know, it's still, yeah, it's still the delay some... might've made it even more impactful, right? Cause in it a way, ended yeah. up making yeah. it released at a time when people cared about it. <laughs> so, so let's maybe, yes, yeah. uh, yeah. take a half step backward and start with what in misinformation is. So to orient people right. to what we're talking about. Um, so if you were to define misinformation and explain why this is something we ought to be worried about, what would be your answer to that? Yeah, well, the definition that I maintain is misinformation is just any information that's that's false or, or incorrect. Um, I think in practice, we often operationalize it as something that runs counter to a well-established scientific consensus, uh, for example, in the domain of science. But it could also be, you know, something that's just proven to be to be incorrect. Now, I think the tricky thing has become so politicized and people questioning scientific consensus and mainstream scientific explanations. And so it gets tricky. But I think the most straightforward definition is just something that's uh, um, that's that's false. Um, and then disinformation, um, I think, is misinformation coupled with some psychological intention to actually actively harm or deceive people. Um, so it's, you know, it's really... Um, not just false, but somebody trying to dupe somebody else intentionally. And then propaganda is disinformation with the, with the political agenda specifically. That's kind of how I think about it and trying to separate all of these terms out in my, uh, in my own head. Um, obviously, the taxonomy is not going to be perfect, uh, but that's, yeah, that's kind of how I distinguish these three forms. And I think disinformation and propaganda are much more concerning than misinformation in a way because, you know, misinformation could just be a simple you know, honest error or mistake. Um, but I think when people use the term, they often imply or think about disinformation rather than misinformation. And so I think it's useful to maybe, you know, split these these terms out. And the same with fake news becomes such a political, you know, uh, term that, that a lot of us try to avoid it. But yeah, I think when people say fake news, they often mean disinformation rather than misinformation. It's tricky because you're implying that you have the correct answers. <laughs> when you talk about misinformation, you go, I know the truth about everything. And so I can like – it's this omniscience that we don't actually have on the ground, right? We're just sorting through information. Um, but it seems that just what's concerning is that we know that at least some proportion of the information that we share and use to form our judgments – is actually just demonstrably false, right? And so we're concerned about how easily people can incorporate that false information into their worldview. 
so as an example, the climate change stuff, what, what was the misinformation that you were considering in that work? Yeah. So the misinformation we were considering in that work was a, a petition called the Global Warming Oregon Petition. And um, maybe it's useful here to sort of introduce our, our philosophy on this. And I think you're right when you said, you know, people assume that you, you know the truth or there's some ground truth. And I think it's so important in science to acknowledge uncertainties and that we don't know everything. But, you know, at this point in time, at least given the weight of the available evidence, we can say something is more likely to be correct than something else. Um, and I think that's really what we mean here. Um, and for us, the way we've operationalized it is not to tell people what's true or false, because there's a lot of research in this domain that uses, you know, articles that are fact checked. And we just, you know, we kind of, um, you know, in a way, we we delegate responsibility to the fact checkers to determine what's true or not. And we just say, well, OK, this has been fact checked. That's true. This is false. You have a, a correct or an incorrect belief. The approach that we've taken is more. We just want to help people calibrate their judgments as to how reliable a piece of information is. You know, assuming that we're not the ultimate arbiters of truth, um, we can say that when something is presented to people, it can be presented in more or less misleading ways. And it would be useful for people to be aware of the ways in which they can be misled so they can, you know, tune their own judgments uh, in a way that's perhaps more consistent with what what is accurate versus what is manipulated. And that's kind of the the paradigm that we use. So the Global Warming Oregon Petition is a, a real petition. So it's a real website that gathers signatures claiming that, you know, there's no scientific consensus on global warming. And in fact, a lot of scientists have signed on saying that climate change isn't real and that sometimes it can even be a good thing. Um, and so, you know, inherently that's contradictory because first you're saying it's not real and then you're saying it can sometimes be a good thing. But but beyond, beyond that, um, there are, there are manipulation techniques that are present in that petition. So we're not saying that this petition doesn't exist or that it's not real. I mean, it's real, it exists, but um, there are techniques that are used to try to do people. So what, what are some of the issues with this petition? Um, one is that a lot of the signatories are bogus. So it's, it, the signatories are unverified. And so historic, these have now been removed, but you know, people who signed up were, you know, members of the Spice Girls, so it was Dr. Gary Halliwell, uh, you know, Star Wars, uh, Charles Darwin, and, you know, people would just, a lot of jokesters would just sign up. And uh, um, then there's the issue that what they call scientists are basically anyone with an undergraduate degree. So not people who have a PhD in a relevant area or publishing in a relevant area, but just really anyone with a science degree. Um, and so they claim that I think 35,000 scientists have signed on. Um, but even if you took that number at face value, that's, you know, less than 0.1% of all science graduates in the U.S. in a given year. So it's really a tiny number. But they use this framing strategy because it sounds like a big number, 35,000. Um, and so they use the absolute kind of fraction to, to persuade people. But I think the biggest issue really is, is what we call the fake expert technique. So in the past, they used a template from the National Academy of Science to present this petition. And the, the National Academy of Science actually had to put out a press release in the 90s saying, this is not us, this is some impersonator, uh, climate change is real, we're not endorsing this petition. Um, and then, you know, there's there are a lot of tricks that they use like that, um, that makes it seem scientific. So the Global Warming Oregon Petition um, is, is published by, I think, the Oregon Institute of Science and, and Medicine or something like that. It's basically like a, a prepper farm somewhere in, in Oregon. Um, there, you know, so it's it's not like a uh, a real sort of science institution. So there's a lot of fakery going on, 
to try to mislead people. Um, and that's what we try to make clear so that people can then make up their own mind as to whether they want to trust it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is a, a great transition to these strategies for manipulation that you've all come upon. Um, and I didn't quite draw the connection before, but you draw the connection in the book to Cialdini's Six Principles of Influence, right? So this is, yeah. listeners of this show will <laughs> probably be familiar with those. Um, and and so I'm curious, you know, you, you pivot from principles of influence to principles of manipulation. And what to you is the difference between those? Yeah, it's so interesting because I've talked to Bob about this and and he told me this wonderful story about um, Bill McGuire, who, if people don't know, know was the originator of the inoculation uh, analogy, who um, who visited Cialdini once um, before he did this research. And, and Bob sort of asked, uh, you know, what do you think? How, how, people sh how should people study social influence and, and so on? He said, well, if you really want to know about how people are influenced, you should go and ask the people who do it for a living. And so that kind of motivated Bob to go undercover and sort of explore these these six principles of, of influence. Um, and it kind of motivated, motivated me to think about what are the principles that are used to systematically deceive and manipulate people with misinformation? Can we uncover those and then inoculate people against them? Um, so the difference between the two and I, I just kind of footnoted this in the book because I didn't want to make it a, a whole thing. But I think a lot of the principles that Bob highlights, like expert authority can influence people um, or conformity or something like that is is fine in a sense. Like, you know, there's something that I refer to as ethical persuasion that, you know, if you try to persuade people, you make it clear that you're trying to persuade them and, and you're being ethical about it in the sense that you're using real experts um, who are just stating what's within their expertise yeah you're trying to influence people um but it's i wouldn't consider it bad or manipulative influence um so the flip side of that would be using fake experts so you, you use people um that have fake credentials or you know you pretend um that you have more expertise than you really have or you have somebody who has no you know expertise in climate science talk about climate change but because they have a doctorate in some other discipline and sound scientific um well, you know, Alex Jones had this guy on his on his TV show or his radio show pushing these supplementary vitamins all the time. And he would call him like this this doctor from MIT. But you know, in reality, this guy did like a summer program, uh, you know, uh, at MIT. He didn't study medicine or anything remotely related. Um, and so, you know, this is what I would call the, the fake expert technique, which is clearly manipulative um, and uh influences people in, in probably undesirable ways. Um, whereas if you're, you know, clear about people's credentials, that they're an expert and you're being transparent and you're trying to influence people, I think there's nothing wrong with that uh, as a social psychologist. I have colleagues who still think there's something wrong with that. Um, but, but um, you know, we're all about this sort of inform, not persuade. But, you know, personally, I think persuading is fine as long as we're all in on it. Um, I think the idea is that um, if you're trying to influence someone without their knowledge using, you know, manipulative tactics. I think that's, you know, um, th that gets into the realm of the dark hearts. Um, and so that, <laughs> that, that, that's why I think it's useful to, to inoculate people. Yeah, the, the influence, all of those are sort of premised on, you know, if you read you know, Cialdini's book, it's very much like, okay, but like, don't, you can't lie to people. <laughs> like, like, yes, exactly. people are more influenced by authority figures, by consensus information, but you can't just tell people, oh, yeah, everyone on your neighborhood has already... Everyone in your neighborhood has already donated if they haven't, right? Like, that's persuasive, but it's manipulative when I'm intentionally deceiving you 
to achieve some end of my own. Is that the difference? Exactly. I think that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah. You can make up the social norm uh, to influence people, but that would clearly be deception um, and or misinformation. In fact, if it's just not true. Um, I think that's 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 where I would draw the line. I think that's also where Bob would draw the line in terms of, um, you know, the, these principles of, of influence. Um, um, and I think what he liked about the book was that, you know, to, to sort of give people a guide of how, how they can spot the reverse. Okay, here, here are the, some principles of knowing when to resist influence when, when it's not ethical. So, um, did, 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 so to generate this set of six strategies for manipulation, did you do what he did? I mean, did you talk to people who engage in this kind of work? Or like, where did this list of six strategies come from? Yeah, yeah. It's not some, you know, magical list that, you know, it's not exhaustive. It's just John Rosenbeek, who's a postdoc or research associate now in my lab, um, and he's been with us for, for actually quite a few years now, since the beginning of, of a lot of this research, we spend a lot of time trying to uncover the techniques that people use, you know, both through literature. So we looked at reports from NATO and, and other organizations who have done a lot of systematic reviews on, on um, information warfare and tactics like that are being used in the field. Um, we listened to uh, so we both had a mutual colleague who set up these events and he would invite people, including some of the people who worked as a, as a troll in a Russian, uh, you know, disinformation farm, essentially. Um, and we would hear about what their strategies were, you know, how they handled it, uh, what was going on and, and how people were duped. And so we went around and talked to the people who do this for a living, um, as well as some systematic research in the, in the scholarly literature. And then we sort of combined uh, what we thought were some of the most prevalent um, um, techniques at the time. Um, and those were the, the six degrees of manipulation. And in fact, a lot of people ask me about this. Well, aren't they kind of like broad? And it's like, yeah, they, they were intentionally broad. Um, because, you know, the more work we did later on, the more specific we got in terms of the techniques, but but we often find that they're just subcomponents of these sort of larger strategies that we initially identified. So so one of the techniques uh, might be useful for people is, is called impersonation, but that can happen in lots of different ways. Um, fake expert just being one example of impersonation, um, and so that's kind of how we stumbled across these larger overarching categories that are being used, um, and that's that's kind of where we started. Yeah, and then you know there there are more that I discuss later on in the book, but they can all most of them can be traced back to, to some of these larger overarching strategies. Um, and sure, you know, people ask emotion, right? But it isn't just emotion. It's it's using emotions to manipulate people, things like outrage or fear-mongering. Um, and then, um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Some people are like, well, can't you use emotions to manipulate people for good causes like climate change or poverty? Um, and in a way, the answer is yes, but it would still be the same in the sense that, you know, you're using a technique to influence people um, that's that might be misleading and is not transparent, and so we should be careful about that. Can you give a flavor of the, some of the other ones as well? Yeah, so the six are um, so impersonating. That's one. Um, the use of uh, negative emotions um, to, to scare people or to cause outrage. Uh, polarization, um, so polarizing groups in society. So you know what people often don't realize is that misinformation. Um, well, this is interesting side debate, whether the real problem in society is polarization or misinformation. But I think often the, the, the connection here is actually that a lot of misinformation plays into polarization. So a lot of misinformation is framed in a way to specifically tap into polarized debates that are happening in society. So polarization is, is well, not just political, but just trying to tear 
divisions between groups in society. Um, and then we have trolling. Um, so trolling is very common during elections and influence campaigns, uh, basically, you know, setting up troll farms to um, sow divisions and, and, um, and use some of these other tactics like polarization. But it's also a technique in itself. So you're trying to manipulate public perception of a debate uh, by creating fake accounts and falsely amplifying um, debates by, you know, creating bots. And then sophistication of the bot is kind of where trolling comes in. So you can have automated accounts that are very low quality, or you can have humans pretending to be somebody um, expressing an opinion online. So for example, a lot of Russian trolls would pretend to be Americans and post about um, things like um, provocative content about relations between African-Americans and um, you know, white people and issues that are on the nexus between, uh, you know, like gun gun violence and things like that. So these were real people pretending to be, you know, I'm just this American sitting at home and I have this idea about, hey, you know, we should we should all not get vaccinated. Or then they would also um, say we should all get vaccinated to try to stir up a debate. And so that's really the the essence of um, of, of of trolling and falsely amplifying um, societal divisions. Uh, and then there's um, conspiracy theories so those are really part and parcel of of misinformation now um but the thing i think that was interesting for us is that conspiracy theories often leverage a grain of truth so what we try to do in our interventions where we try to you know inoculate people is tell people if you're being too ridiculous with some outlandish conspiracy nobody's going to pay attention right it has to be grounded in something real uh, in order for the conspiracy to take off and that's why they're often so influential so conspiracies are obviously a big one um, and I think the last one is called uh, discrediting, um, which is really about saying you're fake news and trying to discredit other people using a range of techniques, you know, discrediting the mainstream media. I think Trump has his famous tweets where he basically says, you know, NBC, um, <laughs> you know, CNN, New York Times, um, they're all fake news. And that's, you know, part of the discrediting of, of official uh, organizations and, and mainstream media. And, um, and sometimes it just turns into whatever your whatever opinion you have that isn't aligned with mine, that's fake news. So I'm going to try to discredit you. Um, and so those, those are some of the strategies that we inoculate people against. And it seems like they're not mutually exclusive, like they can bundle up, right? So uh, you trolling leverages negative emotion to get people to divide themselves politically. And so polarization, trolling and emotion all sort of can get wrapped up in one another. Um, the one the one that I was the most uncertain about was the conspiracy one. So I, I wasn't quite sure how to take that. So is this a strategy for misinformation? or a type of misinformation? Like, like how do we construe yeah. conspiracy as kind of on par with impersonation? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think you're right. You know, a lot of them can be combined. Um, and so in some of our interventions, especially a trolling badge, we kind of put it all together for people um, because trolling, you know, uses some of these strategies. I think mis uh, conspiracy theories can both be a form of misinformation and also a technique to construct misinformation. So, um, you know, when you're... In the shoe, you know, when you're stepping into the shoes of somebody who's trying to produce misinformation, um, one of the things that you want to do to make it more effective could be to to write it in such a way that it leverages the idea of of a conspiracy. And so you might want to say, um, you know, you, you could just have misinformation saying, oh, uh, you know, taking vitamin C will help reduce. Um, the effects of the coronavirus, which is false, right? And that doesn't use any particular technique. But you could also say, um, oh, you know, big pharma is trying to hide that vitamin C is really curing the coronavirus because, you know, people 
just take vitamin C, then they'll lose all their profits from the, you know, producing the vaccine or something like that. So that uses conspiracy as a technique in constructing misinformation in the hopes of it, you know, going further and, and reaching more people than it would have otherwise because you didn't use that tactic. Um, and so that's, I think, where you can use it as an active ingredient in creating misinformation. And that's kind of what we expose in our interventions. But certainly you can also just descriptively analyze misinformation and and call some of it conspiracy theories as a type of misinformation. Um, and so I think you can do both. Is it that we're just naturally inclined to like conspiracies? <laughs> like, like it wouldn't be a strategy if, if it didn't work, right? Is, is that sort of the implication that people are just drawn to this form of information? Um, yeah, I think similar to, you know, appealing to, to people's emotions or outrage, uh, there's a lot of studies showing that there's entertainment value to conspiracy theories. And so people find them inherently interesting. And I think because they lure you in with this simplicity uh, that is, you know, some complex event, but you have a simple causal explanation, it's really appealing to people like, oh, you know, you have this explanation for why the things are happening and it's sort of all connected. And it also seems well researched and that, you know, there's a lot to it and that. So, it, you know, it has it's often dressed up as something intriguing for people. Um, and, um, you know, I think the other factor is that it, it plays into a lot of fears that people and doubts and uncertainties that people have about the world. So it gives them a sense of agency and control over what's happening. And we can pinpoint the, to the, the victim and the, the evildoers. And, and it sort of works it all out. And I think that's why it's so intriguing for people that, you know, there's something in there for most people, depending on what your psychological needs are. And we, we often do this when you fictionally sort of create a conspiracy from scratch. And, and you know, the, the sort of birds aren't real one. I love that one because it's so good at explaining uh, what, what's happening. So when, if people haven't heard of this, there's this satire conspiracy called bird, Birds Aren't Real. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the idea here, and this is why I think conspiracies work, because it sounds ludicrous. Um, the idea that some birds are really government drones here to spy on us. Or in fact, they're just all drones. In fact, in this conspiracy, the birds aren't real because they're all drones. And then, and and then, but but the way they explain the causal, you know, the questions that people might have and how they explain that away with very simple causal explanations is what I think it makes it intriguing. So, for example, why do birds sit on power lines because they need to recharge? Um, because they're, you know, because they're drawn. It all just makes a lot of sense now. Um, <laughs> and so, even even if this is satire, it's just so gratifying, I think, for people to to think about, okay, what else could be part of it? All right. And so, you know, I'm already suspicious of the government and privacy and people spying on me. So this totally fits into my worldview. Uh, even though it's a joke, I think it was constructed in a way that really illustrates that this, the person who came up with this understands the appeal of conspiracy theories. I think my personal two cents, the way I would contribute to this conspiracy is that you shouldn't say that all birds are drones because that can easily be falsified. Um, to make the conspiracy more intriguing, it should be that only some birds uh, are drones. And then you can have a whole thing about what those birds look like and the different spots that they have and the indicators when it's a drone. I think that would make it even even more realistic for people. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully, hopefully that's the one that takes off. <laughs> <laughs> so so if, if we have these tools of manipulation that folks yeah. use to, to spread this kind of information, the next step is to try to counter that, right? So I want to talk about the the work that you've done in that domain, and in particular, the, the bad news game. Um, and so just to give us a, a starting point, can you just sort of describe the basic idea of this game and why it should have anything to do with stopping misinformation in its tracks? 
Yeah, yeah. So, so this b- game we created called Bad News, which was sort of a pun, um, uh, really originated from the idea that, or out of the idea that we could inoculate people. But the challenge was, you know, with the climate stuff, we people come into the lab or online and they read a 600-word essay preemptively before they see the misinformation, you know. And and I had a, a student at the time, so, so John Rosenbeek again, um, who, who said, you know, it's a really cool idea, but, you know, how do you scale this in the real world? You know, how can we actually, people aren't going to come into the lab, read a 600-word essay, be inoculated. Now, how could we really um, do this uh, in a way that's also fun and entertaining for people? And so he came up with this idea that maybe, um, so he and a, a friend of his were thinking about this idea of, of a disinformation simulator. Um, and, you know, the more we, we, we were talking about this, the more we realized we could combine the two ideas. So so you could have inoculation um, within the idea of a disinformation simulator. Um, and so you could combine this, I thought this idea of simulating what fake news or what misinformation strategies are often being used could be really powerful um, when you take the inoculation idea and you create a weakened dose out of that. So so the simulation would be the weakened dose um, of the, the kind of tactic tactics that are used against you. Um, and then we needed to have an environment in, in which to, to make that work. And so, you know, obviously there were a lot of parties involved, game designers, software engineers, uh, media organization we worked with. But ultimately we came up with bad news. Um, bad news simulates a social media feed. We started out with Twitter, so it simulates Twitter. And you have a follower meter and a credibility meter. And the idea is to gain as many followers as possible while not losing your credibility by making use of weakened doses, controlled doses of some of these techniques of the six degrees of manipulation um, in scenarios that are seemingly real on social media. Um, And so that's really what the game is about. And it tries to inoculate you against each of these six strategies by exposing you to to weakened doses and showing you how to spot them um, through this principle that we we kind of termed active inoculation. So active inoculation is really premised on the idea that people generate their own antibodies. So you, you step into the shoes of somebody who's trying to deceive you and you're actively generating your own content. And we thought that was so much more important than passive inoculation, which is kind of like coming into the lab, somebody gives you arguments that you can refute when you later come across a falsehood. But you know you have to rely on somebody else's arguments, you have to remember them, you have to be motivated. And so we thought, well, what if we let people do it on their own? It's a bit more chaotic, a bit more uncontrolled, uh, but what if we let just people do it on their own and create their own weekend dose, give them a few scenarios they can they can choose from, whatever people like, um, using a, a heavy dose of sarcasm and humor um, and and uh, and see how we get on. And that was really the, the original idea. Um, and then we got a prototype and then we started testing and then it kind of went from there. Okay, I'm curious about the actual building of the game. So I shared this with my students I mentioned. And uh, I was like, this is the rare game built by academics that's actually like worth playing <laughs> like like it actually looks like a game it actually functions like a game uh it's not just like a glorified slideshow <laughs> just right, right. a lot of how academic games turn out so like what was the process of actually taking the seed of a clear science-based idea but making it a game that the world would actually be interested in playing yeah yeah it's such a fascinating idea because at the time i had just moved to cambridge i was a new assistant professor you know it was it was it's, it's almost uh you know, seven, eight years ago now. It, 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 it was quite a while, actually. And um, John and I were talking, and, you know, he had this idea of the disinformation simulator, uh, but but it was more, it was it was not the weakened dose version. So I was slightly concerned about 
you know, about the initial idea that, that he and his um, um, friend from, from college had. But the more we started talking about it, the more it turned into to something that, that, that we could do. So I decided to, to use some of my startup funding that I had to, you know, start your own lab to, to you know, throw into this idea. And I thought either this is, you know, this is all crazy and it's just going to turn out into something terrible um, or this could be really interesting. Um, and so it was sort of a high risk project. Uh, but um, initially uh, we started off with, a, you know, a bare bones version um, of, of the game. Um, and uh, we had these techniques. So the, the first part was researching these techniques. Right. And so we were kind of doing things in parallel. So we had a, a software a graphics design company mock up some some ideas and some scenarios and you know what it would look like and then we were doing this this research on the side um, and then at the end when it sort of came together you know John and I started writing the scenarios and inputting things and, and seeing how it worked out um, and doing doing some some testing um, and John's colleague started his own sort of media company at the same time and you know they were interested in producing innovative uh, solutions, real practical solutions to help people. And so um, that's really where we felt the pressure to make this into something that's going to be fun for people. Because the way I had originally maybe envisioned it was something like a boring slideshow, something where you, something like an academic would come up with, right, as you were saying. Um, <laughs> and I think John was quite instrumental, you know, ha having all these, 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 these sort of, you know, slightly... Um, uh, controversial ideas in in making sure that it didn't turn into sort of a boring uh, science project. So you know, I had a risk management strategy, which primarily was to try to rein in some of his Dutch humor, which wasn't necessarily suited for a large international <laughs> audience. Um, quite quite direct sort of humor. Uh, so I was a content moderator, um, um, but also you know things you know making sure that we stick to the science. Um, while also dealing with the creative company and their ideas. And they were really good at, at, at just, you know, putting out an intervention that, that seemed fun and interesting to, to play. But it also made us a bit nervous. You know, it, it was interesting because, you know, when we, when we had a working prototype, um, I mean, I loved it. I mean, I, I, the idea that we were able to simulate a social media feed, I think, was really powerful that we could show these weekend examples. I mean, this was kind of the first interactive fake news game at the – um, at the time, so I think that was really novel in, in the way that they programmed that and were able to, uh, to to come up with things. But then there was the challenge of of, of embedding the the science and making sure that it follows these these strategies and and what's the right sort of you know way of doing it. And it's different from a standard lab experiment, right? Because we we made it a choose your own adventure game, which means that we can't control the exact path for every individual user. So if you're really stuck in sort of a causal inference paradigm, this is really challenging because, you know, even though conditions control treatment might be randomized, we don't have full control over what every player sees all the time in the game. And so it's a 15 to 20 minute deep dive. And so it's, it's a bit more messy, but we really wanted it to be a field sort of experiment and a real thing that people would enjoy. Because John sort of said, if it's not a choose your own adventure game, it's not cool, man. It's it's going to be boring, you know. If there's only one, if there's only one thing you can pick, and and I think it really had a, a you know a good sort of pulse on the on the gaming sort of industry and and, and what people were doing, and um, so yeah, I think all of that was really instrumental to just to make sure that this is not going to turn into 
the yawn factor for people so that it's a real game fun but still has the, the the science to go with it and you have to be lucky because the creative partners that we were working with they were also interested in actually evaluating this and making sure it has impact and they were also very interested in in the science part and and adjusting things based on the science rather than vice versa i mean sometimes we have to compromise and they would come up with something and and uh uh you know i think there were there were some of my students came up with with memes that weren't endorsed by the creative team and so they felt really strongly about some cat meme or something in the game and they were like there are no cats in the game this makes no sense from a creative stand of, uh, point of view of like <laughs> why, why the last screenshot of the game should be some kind of funny cat meme or something and they were like this <laughs> makes no sense um and so and so you know we had to do things but also you know embedding a so so the whole thing about um so we had the prototype we all agreed it was working it took a long time right to build this but then we, we had it working and then we were sort of, okay, well, now we have to evaluate it. So we need we need a pre-post evaluation at the least. And they were sort of like, whoa, um, okay, that's um, that's all a different ball game because, you know, we're, they're creative people. They don't really do that. And so, yeah, that, that required a lot of back and forth and, and, and what's possible and not. And, you know, some of the fair critiques people have about some of our initial studies were just a result of, uh, you know, I mean, the programmers, they uh, – Likert scale. I mean, they, they we just had to work with what they could deliver in terms of the engine. Um, and so, you know, things would slow down the engine a lot if we had too many items. So, you know, you can't have your 30 psychometric sort of instrument built into the game. We could ask maybe five, six questions at the beginning. Um, and the, the anchors on the Likert skills would sometimes float around a bit. And, you know, we, we had to get it, you know, we had to get that fixed and, and make sure that, you know, that was all working. And so it, it was an interesting experience also for them. Um, and so once we had a, a reasonable pre-post test, that's kind of when we had it set up. But then, you know, they said, look, we can really build this out into a, a scientific evaluation component, but it's going to take a lot of, of funding. And so we have to, you know, we have to find funding elsewhere to, to try to build it out. But, you know, now 10 years later or eight years later, um, our games now have a, a kind of building component where, you know, it, it, um, we have a pre and a post test. And we actually have a dashboard so that the data comes in continuously. It does your ANOVA t-test automatically. It just gives us real-time performance data. So it's really, you know, we were able to to, to make this highly advanced uh, still with the same team, you know. So we've learned together over over the last few years and how to make this both fun and scientific. Um, so I don't know. It's a long story, but that's, that's kind of part of it, yeah. I, I love so you're saying you were paying this graphic design team out of your startup fund. You're yeah. You were having to request administrative support for like <laughs> paying these uh game designers. Uh and I have to imagine they're like, What is this guy doing? Why why did we hire this guy? I thought he was gonna do science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it wasn't just a little bit, it was most of my startup funding. Because you know, <laughs> Creating a game like that was expensive, um, and so um, you know it took a lot of. Um, I mean, to be to be fair to the game developers, they really did this on a dime. I mean, it was a, it was exploratory. They gave us a huge discounts um, for for both. You know, if you go to Silicon Valley and ask them to produce this thing, it would be millions. Um, and so we really did it. Uh, you know, uh, they gave us the cheapest version possible, like a prototype to work with. But it's still, you know, it's still. Um, um, required most most of my startup funding um so i didn't have admin support in uh uh for a while myself and 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 other things but john and i were were confident uh and i don't know when you meet a new when you meet a phd student and they're so excited and and they just you know they have all these ideas and i was like you know it's great and we were just spending nights and days in the pub here and and drawing things out and 
you know, it was just so much fun that I thought, let's let's just do it. I mean, if it doesn't pan out, what else is startup funding for, right? You got to take some risks. <laughs> um, and so, um, um, yeah, so it, um, yeah. I mean, we were we were worried. I mean, that, that it wasn't going to pan out or that it wasn't working at all. And so we were relieved when when initially it seemed like we were on the right track. But if I should tell you that before we did the game, we 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 created a, a school version, uh, like a, a board game. Um, that's where we initially started. So it wasn't. Uh, so the story isn't very linear, but it wasn't like we all of a sudden decided, oh, we we're going to do the social media game. Uh, the, we were much more basic. So the first idea we had was to create a board game. And we went into high schools with that board game and did some initial testing, like a pilot test. And that gave us some confidence that this idea could work. And that's kind of when we when we went uh, online and decided that there was a major component missing to our, our whole idea here. Because um, it always seems when people selling their stories, like, oh, they did this thing and then they were successful. But not really. I mean, we, you know, we created lots of different versions. We were fooling around with these cards and and giving people cards of the techniques and then they have to create their own headline with you know different sort of uh you know the, the so okay if you, you're the conspiracy theorist what image would you use the sort of burning car and you know chaos in society <laughs> or this factual headline um and so students we, we saw students were kind of enjoying it and kind of learning about the tactics but then we thought you know we spent just spent a year going into schools and all this field work and we got 100 students in our sample and this is all very difficult and expensive and and that's why we said well let's go online that's that was kind of the the backstory to that yeah okay good because I, I was wondering if you had any indication that this was uh, that you were onto something because the the if the to get to the psychology of it it's sort of a pivot from classic inoculation theory, right? So classically inoculation theory, as you've been talking about, is, you know, you believe something in particular, and then you're sort of coached to question when people try to challenge that belief of yours. And so it's all very specific. It's like training you to counter argue particular kinds of attacks on a belief that you hold. Whereas this is quite a different idea, right? That it's more that there are techniques that people will use for lots of different forms of persuasion that you want to be attentive to, right? And so could you walk through just to flesh that out a little bit, like what is the premise psychologically of why a game like this would actually be helpful? Yeah, so there's two, I think two departures from inoculation, the original inoculation theory that are worth noting. Uh, One, well, one is the, that we already kind of touched on with the climate study was that the original idea was that you would you would have a belief, uh, kind of a, a healthy quote unquote belief, like oh you know um, getting vaccinated helps prevent against disease, and then you would be attacked on this idea. And the, the whole premise of inoculation is that you could bolster people's attitudes preventively by telling them about these upcoming attacks and inoculating them so that they maintain their positive attitude about vaccinations. But my interest already in graduate school was about this idea of, well, it's an interesting idea, but I think the problem with McGuire's theory in this, well, problem, I mean, this, he kind of wrote in the 60s, he said, look, I'm quite confident that this could work when people have the right attitude, but when they don't, it gets a bit more tricky. And, you know, I'd love for, for future research to, to sort of explore, you know, how this, how this could work out. And they never did anything on it. Um, 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 which was kind of surprising. So I interviewed John Jost for the book, who was McGuire's last PhD student, to, to get some sense of, okay, what, what happened there? And he kind of said, like, oh, you know, he loved moving on to new research projects, and he kind of just saw that, you know, this was a, a thing that he came up with, and it was for other people to uh, to continue. 
Um, but then we saw with climate that it didn't really matter so much what your prior attitudes were. Um, you could still be inoculated, uh, even if it, 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 you know. But then what does it mean theoretically for somebody who, who already has the disease to then be inoculated against a virus? Um, I think the way that we think about it is that, you know, in attitude terms, you could think about it as that you both um, change the original attitude people have and then protect it from further attacks, um, which is kind of called therapeutic inoculation. Um, I initially called it reverse inoculation, and then I think we all agree Josh had a better term, uh, therapeutic inoculation, uh, which is that, um, you know, you, just as with some viruses, when people are already infected, you know, cancer, HPV, you can still boost immune response uh, when, to, by giving people the vaccine. And so it could still be useful even when people already have been exposed to a falsehood. Clearly, when people have already been fully radicalized, it's going to lose some of its or most of its value. But um, and so here's where I started theorizing about this, the, the, the inoculation metaphor that actually I think it's better if we think of it as the where people fall in terms of their infection status. So some people, for some people, will be fully prophylactic. They've never been exposed and they have the right attitude. Some people have already been exposed. Maybe they haven't fully changed their attitudes yet, but they've been exposed and are playing with the, the misinformation in their heads. Some people have been fully duped by the misinformation. And so I think therapeutic inoculation can really have a really positive role in sort of the middle um, of the spectrum, whereas sometimes I think you just end up de-radicalizing or debunking if if you're dealing with people who are already fully entrenched in the particular belief system, right? But inoculation doesn't purely have to be prophylactic. And I think that was the big insight um, of that study um, and also later studies that, that kind of, you know, show that you, know, you don't need to have a particular attitude. And the reason why I think this whole infection status spectrum thing is important to answer your question is that when you go into the real world, you don't know what people have been exposed to, um, how often, where, um, even some of our work with social media companies, you know, we ask Facebook, you know, we're doing some pre-bunking on, on Facebook and, you know, Facebook can't tell us exactly what, uh, I mean, can't or won't, I don't know, but, but, you know, um, um, I think they probably don't know, um, what every user has been exposed to, or, or, you know, how much misinformation on the topic they've seen. That's difficult. That takes huge amounts of data and computation. They may not be doing it because, you know, that's not something they're currently, no, I think theoretically maybe they could do it, but it's not something, for example, they might be actively doing. And so that takes a lot of time. So we figure with these games, we don't really know who's, I mean, we know in terms of we can measure it and stuff uh, when people come into the games, but um, what, what would we ask people? Like the game touches on all these, on all these issues and techniques, you know, it's not like a, a one thing. We can't ask people about their attitudes on GMOs and climate or, or these techniques. It wasn't really clear, you know, what, single thing we would ask people about that would count as their sort of prior exposure variable. So we kind of just assumed that, you know, people come into this game having been exposed to lots of different kinds of information. And, but the, the most practical thing is that we sort of want to pre-bunk these, um, these techniques. Um, and we found that that's effective regardless of, um, of, of people's starting point, so to speak. And Josh kind of Compton refers to this idea that, you know, therapeutic inoculation tends to be, effective also in, in, in other sort of experiments. Um, and so for the practitioner, it doesn't really matter if the inoculation is prophylactic or therapeutic. It kind of, it helps people. That's the bottom line. 
for, I think for the theory, for us social psychologists, it's interesting to tease out where people are in the infection on the infection sort of spectrum. Is it fully prophylactic? Is it therapeutic? Because there might be slightly different ways in which it, wor- it works in terms of the mechanisms. Um, and so that's you know, that's part of it. And then the other part of your of your question is about the uh, technique level. So inoculation has traditionally been on the issue level. So you know, so that it's clear that you have an issue and people have attitudes towards this issue, and then you inoculate them. But we wanted to scale this up, and that, and that kind of corresponds with uh, the idea of what Maguire called refutational different and same. So refutational different would be a an attack that doesn't reference the specific content that you've been, ocu- been inoculated against. But traditionally, that's been fairly narrow spectrum. So I inoculate you against one misleading argument, and I don't show you a related argument that wasn't raised in the, in the inoculation itself. With, with this intervention, it was pretty broad, right? We inoculate people against the core concept of a conspiracy theory, but then we test them on a whole range of conspiracy, specific conspiracy theories that make use of the technique and then see, you know, if they've been inoculated. And, and that's, you know, why we expected that maybe the effect sizes would be a bit lower because it's not one-to-one in terms of what people are being inoculated against, uh, but that hopefully, you know, it, w- it would still work. And so that's really the idea behind the technique level inoculation is a, is a broad spectrum vaccine. So you expose people to weakened doses of the technique, and then you test them on a whole range of specific variants of that technique and see if they still show resistance. Um, and that's that's kind of the, I guess, the innovation there in terms of um, technique level inoculation um, that could be prophylactic for some people, might be more therapeutic, um, for other people. Um, and I agree from a theory point of view, that's interesting to sort out, but for the, for the people on the ground, it, it often, um, uh, doesn't, doesn't really matter that much. Um, um, but the interesting point maybe for, for academics is that when I initially presented this, there was a lot of resistance from people who've only read Maguire's original paradigm. And so they kind of said that, but that's not, that's not the original Maguire experiment. And I sort of said, well, if we only did the original Maguire experiment, we would never get anywhere in terms of new theories and new ideas and extending it. Um, and it's funny that Josh Compton wrote this article that, that you know, how he talked about the analogy being instructive, not prescriptive, um, because there's so much more about this viral analogy that, that's left unexplored. And I think John Jones told me the same, that Maguire was actually quite flexible in in the way that, that, that he thought about it. Um, I mean, he had ideas, specific ideas about his own paradigms, but um, he was flexible in terms of how this metaphor could actually work. Because to me, he never, as a social psychologist, he never explored what for me is the the true question of this line of work is herd immunity, the social nature of inoculation. Um, And uh, yeah, he never really touched on that. And so this is why I think it's, it's so interesting. And yeah, now we're doing kind of computational models of what happens if we inoculate X percent of a social network and we achieve herd immunity against misinfo and sort of taking this to the next level. That's that's all of these exciting open questions. Uh, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the idea. But but I think it, it's the same principle. Um, you just do it on a technique level so that it offers broader resistance. And we have to be a bit more flexible about the assumptions of people's prior exposure levels coming into the to the experiment. So we've done more more work trying to sort out, for example, people who perform who seem more susceptible on the pretest actually benefit more. So that you know it does seem like it benefits the the groups that are most in need of the vaccination. Um, um, but there's there are other things like if somebody is really um, highly scores high on like a uh, let's say an index of polarization, they might not 
be inoculated as much on the inoculation technique. So they might have, you know, some prior beliefs that are interfering uh, with the with the inoculation. Um, we've done things with social cues. So if we put lots of social cues on the post that we show people at the end, so even though they've been inoculated against the post, let's say that shows a conspiracy, if we say that a million people have liked it, that kind of interferes with the efficacy of the inoculation a little bit. Um, so it doesn't eliminate it, but it re reduces it a bit. So I think there's lots of, yeah, lots of ways in which um, the inoculation where context is relevant for the efficacy of the inoculation, including your prior belief status, source, um, uh, norm cues, and all of these interesting things that, that we need to explore further. Well, that's great. Well, I'll keep an eye out for all that stuff that's coming down the pike. And uh, this has been great. So thanks for taking the time to talk about this work. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thank you so much to Sander Vanderlinden for taking the time to talk about his work. Check out the episode webpage for a link to his lab's website where you can find more about his research. And his new book is Foolproof, Why Misinformation Infects Our Brains and How to Build Immunity. If you're listening to this today, well, I mean, <laughs> I guess you'll always be listening to this in your today, but if you're listening in my today, you can pre-order the book online now. But if your today is after February 16th in the United Kingdom or March 21st in the United States, then you can just buy it right now. Like you could go to the store and, and they might even have it just like sitting there. Also, at the beginning of this episode, you heard about the story of Benjamin Harris's inaugural issue of America's First Newspaper. In putting that together, I owe a huge debt to a recent book by Andy Tucker, a professor at the Columbia Journalism School. Her book is called Not Exactly Lying, Fake News and Fake Journalism in American History. You'll find a link to that book in the show notes, plus a few other sources that I turn to. Um, one thing about that, by the way, that I, that I got from this book that I wasn't able to mention in the beginning is that I, I guess the whole idea that journalists shouldn't like make stuff up <laughs> was not always a prevailing mentality. It wasn't until the late 19th century or so that some newspapers emerged with a real commitment to being objective and uh, engaging in sound reporting. Before then, reading the newspaper was just like a breezy pastime. And part of the fun, I guess, was picking the papers that reported the news from the perspective you liked. Embellishing and fabricating were, were just par for the course. Don't take my word for it. Read the book to check that what I'm saying makes sense. Uh, and it's true, but uh, I, I found that interesting. But for all the very real and very trustworthy news about why and how we hold opinions, well, this podcast has what you're looking for. Opinion Science is the name. Listen to it wherever you like. Just subscribe to it, okay? So, so you don't miss any. Go to opinionsciencepodcast.com for transcripts, links to the cool stuff that we talk about, and ways to support the show. Have fun with all of that, and I'll see you back here in a couple weeks for more Opinion Science. Bye-bye.